Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Okay, very, it's always exciting to go live. Well, hello, everybody. Today is, I believe, December 20th. That's correct, yes. Wow, time flies. So today is December 20th, 2021, approaching the end of a very strange year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very pleased to have with me um, in person Mr. Harold Vanderlind, um, which in Dutch sounds something like Harold Vanderlinder. No, that's very well pronounced. Excellent. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm not a Dutch speaker, but uh, yeah. You can, can become one. Yeah, maybe I can become one. <laughs> Um, and uh, Harold is the um, Asian equity strategist. Correct, for HSBC. Yep. Harold's the Asian equity strategist for HSBC. He's, um, we'll talk a little bit more, but he's been uh, in the Asia region for uh, a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And he recently wrote an excellent book called Asia's Stock Markets from the Ground Up, which details his experiences as in uh, arrive it's his experiences as an adventurer uh, through Asia and interacting in the Asian economies and the listed companies and uh, many of the lessons he's learned and many of his very interesting observations. So Harold, welcome to the Reorient podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to have you. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, many interesting tales. I love the fact that you blend a lot of uh, personal anecdotes, uh, experiences with, with food, which is something that's important to me and other people. And obviously, Asia has a wonderful range of, of different types of cuisines and also the interesting people you come across in companies. So Absolutely, yeah. uh, congratulations on uh, publishing this book. Um, so before we get into the book, Harold, no. um, tell us just a little bit about how um, uh, someone that grew up in Holland um, ends up, here. Ends up uh, really becoming a, a, a an Asian equity strategist with the top global investment bank uh, very far from your, where you grew up. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I grew up in a small industrial town. Um, nothing really exciting happens there in Omelo. It's called in the eastern part of Holland. Uh, I went to university in uh, in the Netherlands, uh, University of Groningen in the north. Um, and um, for some reason, not quite sure, I wanted initially to go to Ireland. Uh, but to cut a long story short, in order to get some money to go to Ireland. I was lucky and made more, much more money than I thought. And suddenly somebody told me, listen, you can go actually to some other place where you're going to go. You can, you can travel any place in the world. This, must have, this was 1990, and I decided I wanted to go to Indonesia, presumably because, well, you know, you see advertisements of people going to Indonesia, the stories go around. I, there was no other reason for it, but I thought, I want to go to Indonesia. So I went backpacking there, And I had the incredible luck that on a ferry, I met a small little girl. She was nine. She was sick. Gave her some medicine. Got in touch with her parents. And we spoke a bit. I didn't speak Indonesian at the time. And um, when I later left the ferry to go wherever I wanted to go to, some islands in the neighborhood, um, this is East Indonesia, um, they were picked up by people and said, why don't you drive? We, we can drive you somewhere. And when we drove there, we started to chat. They said, listen, we're going to stay in a hotel that's owned by this friend of ours. You, you can stay there as well. You don't have to pay. So I stayed with them. And I stayed with them for three days. And eventually they said, why, if you're in Jakarta, 
come and stay with us again. I did that, and instead of staying for a few days, uh, it turned out to be six months. And I made a deal with him. You teach me Indonesian. I teach your daughter, who was nine, uh, to speak English. So I, I really got myself into Indonesia, and yeah, that was my first backpacking trip the year after. I went back, I went to China, I became a tour guide in China. I was lucky at the university, we had a, um, uh, quite a well-known professor, Madison, who looked at all sorts of long-term trends, who said, listen, with your exams, just let me know when you can do it, you should go travel. And I ended up in the region and I really didn't want to go back, and um, yeah. That's how I ended up here. Well, a lot of people, um, including myself, have fallen in love with this region mm -hmm. because it offers so much in terms of um, diversity. As you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of hospitality. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of excitement, enthusiasm, because there's a lot of economic growth going on. So there's a lot of things to keep somebody here. Um, you obviously, um, I think you came in the early 90s. Yeah, 1990 was the yeah. first time. That's right. So um, that was really an exciting time because uh, Asia was you know, booming really all the way up until around the time of the Asia financial crisis in 97-98. No, absolutely. So when I arrived in 1990, I was still a student. And eventually I wrote my master thesis at the central bank in Jakarta. Um, I found it all fascinating. And China at the time, as I mentioned, I became a tour guide eventually in China to make a bit some money on the side. So that's 1992, 3, 4, uh, 5. And China at the time was just not really going anywhere. Um, so in 1990, I think it was 1994 or five, when I had to decide where I'm gonna, where I'm going to look for a job. I actually picked Indonesia because I wasn't quite sure where China was going. But China was growing at that time. That I know, Shenzhen, Chengdu, Shanghai, there was a lot of building going on. But it hadn't entered the WTO yet. That would come years later. And a big boom in growth that would come later as well. But, yeah, you could see the early signs of things going well in this region uh, already. Yeah, absolutely. So you picked uh, Southeast Asia to, to begin your career. And, yeah. and you really did start in the, uh, in the world of... Um of, of, of equity research uh, from a yeah. fairly uh, early stage. So um, maybe just walk us sort of quickly through what Southeast Asia was like in the time in the mid-90s and then what happened with the Asia financial crisis. Yeah, so I found eventually a job uh, with a Swiss bank, became a junior analyst, and I found it fascinating because... Uh, I was trained as an economist, didn't know too much about finance, so I had to re-study and did the CFA and stuff. Um, but then you could actually just go and visit all sorts of companies and meet with management of these companies, and they would tell you what they do. You could see their factories. So I traveled all over, uh, particularly Indonesia at the time, see cigarette companies, cement facilities. And I found it almost wide-opening as an economist because I thought, hey, I can see how the economy really works. That I found interesting. Um, but also just to see the differences, I mean, just to travel around there, almost like a backpacker, but now I had a suit on. I found that just incredibly interesting to see all these different places. Um, and Indonesia was booming. I mean, we had people coming through. There was a lot of demand. Um, uh, foreign fund managers were not traveling as much in those days. So you would travel to other places and people were eager to know what happened in Indonesia. And I felt that I had a different view to offer because I, I, I didn't live with that family anymore. 
but I still know them until today. So uh, I uh, I could tell them what kind of average Indonesian life was and wha- what big a budget they had and what kind of things they were doing. If they made money, they wouldn't necessarily buy a motorcycle car, but they wanted to go for a Hajj to Mecca first and all these sort of things. So I found it super interesting. But then suddenly the Asian crisis came. That was quite overwhelming. Uh, this was 97. And of course, in, in Indonesia, it meant that the downturn led to all sorts of political change, right? Suharto was the president. He had to step down. There were tanks on the street. People got shot on the street. I've seen that. Um, I had to walk sometimes home in the evenings, uh, trying to navigate the streets, uh, avoiding tanks and and, uh, and people with stones in their hands, throwing it at the police. So it was all very, in a sense, very violent, but oddly enough, also not. At some of the demonstrations where I arrived, people would say, hey, hey, don't come here because we're going to throw stones at the police and they might shoot back. This is quite dangerous for you. You should take that alley or something like that. Quite oddly, kind of friendly in in a way, uh, but that crisis taught me maybe a couple of lessons. First of all, things can go horribly wrong in stock markets and, and economies. Um, and secondly, this was later in the crisis. Indonesia, over the last twenty years, has been one of the best performing markets because, well, you had a very low point from which to invest. And I've seen people come in. This was nineteen ninety nine, two thousand to invest and have done very well on that. So sometimes, yeah, you have to go against the stream, and when sentiment is very weak, you you go for it, yeah. Yeah, and obviously in the midst of the Asian financial crisis, sentiment was very weak. In some ways, Indonesia was the epicenter. It became the epicenter, right? You mentioned in your book uh, with the the, the taxi company. uh, Yeah, steady safe. That led to the collapse of Peregrine, uh, I believe. And and so that was an important story in the Asian financial crisis. How did you feel about how uh, the world and investors dealt with the Asia financial crisis. And in many ways, uh, Asia, uh, you know, did actually come out of it relatively quickly. Yeah, I think at some point in time, people just threw Indonesia on the rubbish uh, belt and said, uh, we don't want to look at it anymore. I was a banking analyst. I looked at industrials as well. And I remember doing a marketing trip in Singapore and Hong Kong, and I think maybe London as well. It doesn't matter too much. Meeting people, and they only met me out of pity. They said, oh my God, there's still a guy who covers Indonesia. Banks, I don't really want to talk about it, but I think it's it's kind of brave that he's doing it. So I'll see him. I'll have a meeting with him. Um, actually, in hindsight, that was the time to really come in. Uh, some banks like BCA, which is a phenomenal strong bank at the moment, at the time was probably trading at about three times earnings. It was you could you could get it for cheap. United Tractors was incredibly cheap. It couldn't go lower because the next level was zero. Um, so there were some of these companies that had extremely dis- discounts, but yeah, people had an aversion. They didn't want to look at it. It was over. And it also, that was the time when China started to emerge. Yeah? This is the early 2000s, you could say. Um, so they threw it on the rubbish soap. Another thing that I felt is that when the IMF came in, that a lot of people had opinions about Indonesia, but never really looked deeper to the country. They were very much on macro. This is what the central bank needs to do. Inflation is this and rates. And, and to a certain extent, there was right. But there were a lot of things going on that I could see with that family where I lived. Um, they struggled as well. And I remember one of them once saying that, well, if things go really bad, at least we got a banana tree in, in, uh, behind the house. So we can always eat bananas, right? There was some kind of flexibility and fluidity. And I'm not quite sure what the right word is of how these people dealt with what they called Krismon, the monetary crisis at the time. Um, and that, that, that is stuff yeah, that you don't see in the numbers. That I found very insightful. 
Now, um, you know, just fast forwarding, uh, Asia came out of the Asia financial crisis and there was, again, sort of back to growth, a lot of excitement again. And then we ran into the 2008, which is really a a U.S. crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, some call it the global financial crisis or the financial tsunami. But you had the collapse of Bear Stearns and then you had the collapse of Lehman Brothers and and Merrill Lynch uh, nearly bought by Bank of America. And really the whole uh, U.S. financial system was on the precipice. And then that led to, I guess, capital being called and leaving Asia and emerging markets to, you know, perhaps to pay back whatever is need to be paid back in, in the U.S. So how did you view the uh, the GFC uh, in terms of its impact on Asia and mm. the way investors looked at Asia? Yeah, um, I think there is something really important happening now that tells us something about that. Yeah. Um, we, we, there's a lot of retail investors at the moment coming through. So we see a lot of Asians saving and actually investing in stock markets. In 2008, that wasn't the case. And prior to 2008, absolutely not. So it was actually emerging market fund managers who made the decision to be in, say, Korea or Indonesia, whatever, Malaysia. Um, and if something would happen in, in Venezuela or in Argentina or Turkey, they would take money out of emerging markets. They were seen as one class. And this was still the same with uh, in the global financial crisis as well. Um, so they just pulled back. These markets collapsed. Now I think we're at a point whereby maybe that is gradually changing because you see that local funds and local retail investors become increasingly important. So they are the marginal buyer. And that means that, yeah, even though the emerging market fund manager says, hey, I'm going to pull back, um, that might not have a big impact on markets now as it would have in those days. Yeah. Yeah, so I remember when I was in Taiwan, um, that uh, back in the um, in the nineteen nineties, the retail investors uh, had a huge impact on the Taiwanese market, and they'd mm. actually see uh, particularly. Um, uh, either retirees or semi-retirees or housewives would go to the brokerage firm itself and there'd be seats there Sitting and there, they yeah. would be snacking on things and yep. watching the... Yeah, have a cup of tea next have to a them. Cup of tea and they could spend the whole day there watching yeah. the market and maybe phoning in orders. Yeah. Uh, is that a, a phenomenon that we see across much of Asia? I think to a certain extent, yeah. I think you, we see this in China as well. Uh, Taiwan has always been quite prominent in that, I must say. I've, uh, I lived in Taiwan as well, so exactly the same. Uh, but I now see in India, but I take my nephews and that, that, that girl who I just spoke about who was not years old in 1990 um she's a bit older now um uh, they are investing as well they don't sit necessarily in in smoky uh, brokerage rooms but um it's all online now but they, yeah they, they they buy stocks as a much more interest in that and they go to smaller and mid-cap companies it broadens the liquidity in, in that segment of the market as well that's just very healthy mm. yeah now just to fast forward to today um one thing that's been surprising for a lot of professionals, uh, including myself, is to the extent to which the U.S. market in particular, maybe other developed markets, have outperformed uh, emerging markets in, in, in Asia as well for you know over a decade. And um, despite the fact that you have very strong economic growth in this region, mm. uh, U.S. you know the S and P index or the Dow Jones index or the Nasdaq index have outperformed. Uh, yeah. by a, how do you explain that, and what does that mean about um, you know the sort of the EM story when we were all excited about? bricks and emerging markets and yep. Mark Mobius and all the all these sorts 
sorts of things, and it's been disappointing in many ways, hasn't it? In that sense, it's been disappointing. Actually, I, I, let me go and add something to that. If you, if you look at also the volatility that we have here, it, you'd say, why would they even be in emerging markets in Asia? But there are two ways to the, uh, the two sides to that. I would say, first of all, yes, the S and P has outperformed over the last ten years, but over the last twenty years, not. And actually. Um, if you look at the last 20 years, and admittedly it's a long time, um, Japan has, if you would invest $100 in the S&P on the 1st of January 2020, you would now have about 450, 470 US dollars, just below 500. If you would have put that into Japan, you would now have about 150. That sounds really low, but actually Japan was still deflating in the early 2000s. Singapore, 140, also not so much. India, 1,000, done 10 times. Um, Shenzhen has done 10 times. The HSCI is, I th- on the top of my head, I think it's 550. So it's all over the place. The problem is that we just don't have one Asia. It's, as you said in the beginning, it's extremely diverse. So over the, la- over the last 20 years, Asia has outperformed, but yeah, some markets have massively underperformed. So you have a wide range of, of performances. And it's maybe not fair to put them all together and say, hey, on average, they haven't done as good. Um, uh, but yeah, notwithstanding that, the other thing maybe that we learn from here is that economies can grow very fast, but maybe markets or companies do differently. So we need to think about differently. And I think this is a particularly the case in, in Asia. In the US, you have a stock market that somewhat reflects, maybe less so even now, but somewhat reflects in the economy. But in particular in Taiwan and Korea, that's not the case. You have to think about differently about these markets. They're global markets in a sense. Mm. So for a, a global investor, let's say um, a pension fund in, in uh, Europe, um, mm. how should, or, or, or perhaps maybe uh, maybe even better, let's just talk about a, a retail investor. I have a, a small retirement portfolio. How should uh, I be thinking about including Asian equities in, in, uh, in a sort of global yeah. portfolio? Yeah. Now, first of all, I think uh, if you have Asia, I believe, should be part of a global portfolio. It shouldn't be the only portfolio you have, it should be part of a global portfolio. Why? Because Asia just moves differently than the US, and that gives you the advantage if the US does have a bad year, Asia can do very well. In the last couple of years, it's been the other way around, but there's no guarantee that over the future that will be the case. Secondly, Asia is quite volatile, it moves all over, and markets' performance are very different as well. We've seen this over the last 12 months. China has been very bad. India has been very strong. So you you can, if you want to, be willing to actually switch between countries actively. That's something that Asia offers you as an opportunity. In the US, you you just buy the US and the S&P 500. Um, But if you then look at what should you buy, over the last 20 years, two kind of sort of companies have done very well. It is companies that have emerged from nowhere to become global leaders. I think a great example is Giant, the bicycle maker in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan the bicycle makers, or the bicycle industry is not an overly exciting industry, not like robotics or the metaverse. It's, it's a steady kind of growing market. Still, that share price has gone up something like, I don't know, uh, uh, 30, 15 to 20 times over the last 20 years because it's been able to become a global leader in the industry. So those sort of companies do very well. And then you have companies that are domestically extremely strong, have a phenomenal distribution network. And particularly India, Indonesia, but I think in China as well, it's still not easy to compete if you have something like that. So if you want to really go to stocks, those are the attributes I would look for. Global leaders, domestic leaders. Okay. Um, 
let's um, maybe think about um, a lot of listeners might think look at uh, ratios, financial ratios, mm-hmm. P ratios, price to book, dividend yield. Are these ratios useful in Asia? Do you see investors looking at them, and, and how do how might that in terms of the market? Can they transfer, you know, each market might have very different uh, dynamics that would make the ratios look very different, even though yep. that doesn't mean it's more attractive uh, yep. than, than somewhere else. No, you've got to be careful just to use these numbers singularly. So if you say, okay, let's look at PEs and we look at markets, you say, well, Korea is the cheapest market, so that, that must be good for Korea. No, then we find out that Korea has been the cheapest market for the last pretty much 20 years already. So it doesn't tell you so much. We can go into detail why that is the case, but that is certainly the case. India is the... The opposite's always been rather expensive. The companies are very profitable. The way I think about markets is slightly different. I use these ratios as well, um, but I look at them as two things. I look at the earnings that these markets generate. Uh, so I, uh, the economics of, of Taiwan or China is all nice and well, but what does that mean for the earnings? And as I said earlier on, you can have an economy that's very strong, but the earnings can be weak or vice versa. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.